0: Once more under the breach, dear friends, once more. This is Mikey of the Sing Your War Song Podcast. I am but your humble host, your common theologian, your fellow Christian layman, your regular dude, and I am honored to have as a guest here my friend Cole Billiot, otherwise known as Christus Rex on Instagram. And uh, Cole, I want to welcome you on. I want to thank you, first off, for your work. You have been An edifying voice in the social media realm I know you've taught me a lot and made me question a lot uh, examine my faith and look to the word to ensure that I am uh, walking in the way as I should so I want to welcome on how you doing man
1: dude, I am stoked to be here. You're thanking me. I want to thank you. All of your content, especially on Instagram, makes me want to run through a wall. Um, So I really appreciate (laughs) the the motivation, the actual iron sharpening iron, and I am doing better than I deserve, as my uh, former preaching grandfather would always say. So thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited.
0: Praise God, brother. I appreciate that. Um, So in, in light of your work, we talked about it, and uh, we'll, at the end, I'll make sure that uh, we can give a shout-out to everything you're doing, all your projects. But one of them is called uh, Doctrines and Grains, correct? Yeah, Doctrines
1: of Grains, that's right.
0: Doctrines of Grains, uh podcast is out there, you and your buddy. And um, looking at the uh, biblical use of alcohol, I love it. And in light of your uh, your episode on the Guinness family, which was awesome, about Christians doing God's work here on earth and advancing the kingdom, and one way of doing that is the biblical use of uh, of beer and and its enjoyment. We both got a Guinness here, and uh, okay, here on it. the episode, we're we're both going to pour a pint here. So let's let's rock and roll.
1: Please, and I appreciate the shout out. And yeah, folks, if you don't know the story of the Guinness family and the kingdom, then you're missing out, and you're also missing out on these pints. So this this is just about the the best way to start off, really.
0: Oh yeah! Oh yeah! <sighs> I always say Guinness is a beer I could have for breakfast. <laughs> you know, apparently
1: that's what when they, when they started doing that. So, <laughs>
0: amen. Well, cheers, brother.
1: Cheers. Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: All right. So today, the, uh, our conversation and this podcast, and I thank you Cole for being a listener, but we know that, uh, the context of this con, uh, podcast is propagating the idea that Christianity is a a worldview and the idea that Christ is for all of life and our Christianity should be the lens through which we see the entire world And so what we are really tackling and what we'll argue here I think is that that includes the institutions and our modern day Christianity has not taken a serious look especially here in America and the West about how our institutions should be governed. So, as we proceed forward, my plan for this podcast is kind of tackling each institution with a guest. And I thank you for being my first guest. And we're going to tackle that that monster that is the state, because uh, that is the institution that um, has become, I think, tyrannical more than the others. And we monster need to bring it isn't, back isn't into
1: word. Yep.
0: Yeah yeah and we need to bring it back into its place so but before we begin on that uh why don't you give our listeners here just a short synopsis on your uh your upbringing we don't need a life story you can give your caveat on on your current occupation and right, um, exactly. just wherever you want to take that yeah
1: <laughs> right so quick caveat folks i am a, an officer in the united states navy so therefore Whatever I'm about to say in the next couple of minutes does not reflect the United States Navy nor the DOD. Um, but as the shirt implies, I have quite a few things to say about both. That being said, I grew up uh, the youngest of seven in a Southern Baptist family. I didn't have a chance. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher. Uh, but then as, as uh, even Paul Washer has said that Presbyterians are just Baptists who read, uh, when I got to college, uh, you know, I uh, two years in, I dove into Reformed theology at the chagrin of my Baptist, free will Baptist upbringing, and uh, yeah, here we are now. And I will tell you that if you're scared of Calvinism, it's okay. It, we don't always bite. Sometimes we do. But one of the things that we do bite at is the state. It is the Calvinistic worldview, in particular, within the church, that has had a lot to say on what is the relationship between people and institutions and our lord and savior jesus christ so i'm i'm very excited about diving into that uh diving into that with you today mikey
0: yeah i mean what i've come to realize you know through through my podcasting my first episode dealt with tyranny um and arguing that it's a satanic and we should resist it but uh and the biggest tyrant seems to always be the state especially in our modern world but that our our christian forefathers um made these arguments hundreds of years ago, if not thousands of years ago with people like Augustine, you know, and, uh, and obviously biblically and they've, but it seems like um, we're always in the book of judges (laughs) and we go through these vicious (laughs) cycles and we always have to have these reforming moments. Um, But uh, you know, I, I can't in good, in honesty, call myself a uh, Calvinist because I haven't even read the Institutes. But let's just say I've read some Calvinist brothers and um, I take very seriously the sovereignty of God. So right. I'll, I'll leave it there. So with that, I can I can agree with you on for sure. Right. Uh, so very, you,
1: yeah, go ahead. No, go, go say, ahead. At the very least, you don't, have a, you don't have to be a Calvinist to look around right now and go, huh, I don't think God would like this. Uh, <laughs> <so> <laughs> yeah.
0: That's,
1: if anything else, let's start there and start unpacking.
0: No, oh, amen, brother. So as far as your, your Christian walk, you were brought into it. Was there ever an idea? You know, everyone has that. I was saved moment or was it just, um, you know, I was brought up into it and it's just what I've understood. Obviously right. knowing, you know, what, what we believe the spirit regenerated your heart. Uh, right. but, uh, was there a moment you realized that, or is just kind of like, this is what I was growing up into. And then you were kind of sanctified as as you walked in the faith.
1: Right. I think particularly in our postmodern framing uh, with our five second attention span, we often live second to second looking for those very intense seconds. But often the Bible speaks of living from season to season. Uh, You know, there's a time to do this and a time to do that. And so uh, I I know now, looking back on it, that I was born into a Christian home. So I was a part of the covenant and baptized into the covenant, uh, though later at a profession of faith when I was eight years old. But then what followed was a season where I really embraced, just like many of us, kind of nominal evangelicalism, right, of going to church on Wednesdays and Sundays and being part of Christian things, but not really knowing like what's the bridge between these kind of spiritual things and then secular things, cause they're supposed to be separate, right? And um, everyone else mm-hmm. was doing it in high school, you know, living kind of this double life. And so, so did I, and even more so my first two years of college, I did things that I never thought I would ever do. But again, uh, while feeling convicted, because then I would go and lead Bible studies or be a part of leading worship, well, so was everyone else. So what's, you know, what's going on here? But it really wasn't until there was a, a changing season where uh, I really started, one, started actually making it a mission to get through scripture cover to cover. And two, blending that with actual Christian obedience. So uh, there was a trip that uh, a group of us went on to evangelize on the beach in Panama City, Florida during spring break as college students. So we're going up to other college students who are partying, trying to share the gospel. And I realized, I was like, well, wait a second. If I wasn't with this group, I would be with that group. And I have no right to try to share with them this gospel that I'm not living. And so that eating away at my soul for months led me to just deep dives into scripture and to, to ask questions that we take for granted, like, well, wait, how is it that some, you know, Jewish man on a cross two thousand years ago does anything with my guilt, shame, and all the poor things that I've done? And additionally, who did he die for? Those were questions that we took for that I took for granted, that we often take for granted, that I, I didn't have answers to. And so through exploring that and God's grace and mercy, it led me to the understanding of oh gracious, yeah, like I know i can 't save myself there 's really nothing because no matter how many times I try to quit habits or stop making poor decisions or stop wanting the things of the flesh, I really can 't I needed as ezekiel thirty six describes I needed a new heart, a heart transplant to remove that heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, and i ain 't no heart surgeon, and that kind of spiritual operation nobody with human hands can do only the human hands of the son of man, Jesus Christ and his sovereign grace. So from there, that's where all, everything changed was, was understanding that, that salvation is a sovereign work of God that resurrects dead men. It doesn't heal sick men. It resurrects dead men, just like Lazarus, who would not have gotten up unless Christ had called him.
0: Mm. Amen, brother. That's a testimony right there. And that's, uh, <laughs> you know, coming to fully realize as I've walked, you know, I've, <clears throat> told my testimony on a couple of podcasts, but, you know, I came late into the faith, 21 years old, but was just deep in the word. But this idea that, uh, you know, these these deeper things that, that we need to study, but um, understanding that there's this there's this area area of like of mystery, if not fully comprehending, you know, and um, what I find interesting is a lot of people that despise, you know, Calvinistic soteriology um they tend to argue that that calvinists are very and you know they they can fall into this trap being eggheady, kind of looking down their nose at people but the calvinists i've read very smart men you know um one of my favorites cornelius van till you know an absolute stud his mind was amazing um j.i packer these these great theologians that that wrote about this they're some of the most humble men and they admit um that this is a mystery uh, but it is what the bible says about these things we can't fully from our position harmonize these ideas and we're going to talk about this a little bit to ha- to frame our conversation within context we can't fully harmonize from our position the idea that there there's god's decree and then but if god also gives commands and humans are responsible and so i think a lot of christians they try to use these other ways of trying to harmonize us the best they can where the calvinist just says no you can't you know that's sort of like some of calvin's quotes he just goes to romans 9 he says oh man who are you to talk back to your god right you I was know, he... say, are
1: we quoting, Calvin or are we <laughs> quoting paul because paul i mean yeah paul even, yeah. even later in chapter 11 after unpacking this crazy theology goes oh how wonderful and unsearchable the riches of the wisdom of god and you're just like all right. It seems like you had a good handle on it. I guess you don't. Who knows? You know.
0: <laughs> yeah. God is is unapologetic about displaying this mystery. There's several examples where, um, you know, Pharaoh in Egypt. It's it's in the same chapter. He says like, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then he says Pharaoh has hardened his own heart, and then he says, you know, Jesus says, I have chosen you. You did not choose me. But then he says, now obey my command. Seemingly, these two things that are at odd, he's he's unabashed in speaking his truth that me, the sovereign God who wills all things can harmonize this, even though you can't understand it. So that's where this, that, that trust comes in, but it has something to say about how we live, because Mm -hmm. if you, as we're going to see, if you don't take seriously in, uh, in understanding the, the full nature of God's sovereignty, we, we start to fall into these traps of like sacred, secular divides and, and these things. So,
1: right. We start believing that there are stones, which the Lord has left Untouched, but he spoke Mm. all of them into existence with his very words. So he is more to to say that he has touched every stone or left no stone untouched is an understatement. He spoke every stone into existence,
0: amen, brother. All right, well, well, let's uh let's dive into it. So the first area is, is understanding the state. When I, you know, to define our terms, we may use interchangeably the state, the government. More than likely, we're going to say the civil magistrate because that's the term many of the reformers use. But what we're talking about is 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 what you would think of that that nation state that quote unquote legitimate governing body that that writes the laws that that executes the laws of a land. So in in talking of this state, you know, we're talking about the sovereignty of God, and all Christians should I say should if you're a true Christian take seriously the sovereignty of God, and today many would look to their current situation you know with with how the state is and many christians would say this is this is not good but no matter the nature of the state that's governing them they would say that we should simply submit because god has sovereignly placed that authority into power so you know god is sovereign he determin he brings up rulers and casts them down he determines all things so no matter what we sh- as christians we should simply submit to this authority. So framing that, let's let's gain some context before we proceed, Cole. Can you we're going to talk about, you know, God's will. Can you speak to the nature of God's will? And what I mean is, you know, the nature of decree and command and secret in and, and revealed. Those two things like we talked about that seem to be at odds, but nonetheless they're both true. Can, can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Right, of course. And I will say, before I say anything else, it is very important for the audience to know, I am also not a theologian, not a professor, just a regular dude. I always love that, and you're open. Yeah. Uh, I, I was a bit of a political uh, science nerd. It's what I did in college. Um, got a Bachelor's of Science in it, so I tell people I am a legitimate scientist, just a political scientist. Um, <laughs> so, so I have that background. But I will, uh, surely before this episode is over, I will recommend uh, a plethora of reads uh, and individuals who you need to consult, who are actual experts on uh, this matter, because again, uh, what Mikey and I are discussing right here is not a novel thing to the 21st century. It, it's it's actually a part of what made Protestants, Protestants, right? It's what made mm-hmm. us what we are. So it's it's a rich part of our heritage. But that being said, as we dive into, you know, what is the nature of God's will, decree, command, um, the secret things and the revealed things. There's, you know, we could go into so many rabbit holes with that that are really, really deep. But I think very practically, there's a couple of passages that help with this that that are also intuitive to our own nature. So uh, Deuteronomy 29:29, 29, 29, for example, says that the secret things belong to Yahweh; they, be, they belong to the Lord. But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. So, mm. so, namely, the things revealed—the most important things revealed—because God has clearly revealed Himself in nature. The Scriptures say Romans one and um, uh, Psalm nineteen, and uh, even I love how the wisdom literature uh, Solomon says, even look to the ant and you will learn something from him. So, so, not only has God revealed Himself in nature, but even more specially, He has specially revealed Himself. Uh, in his very words, because as as Jesus will later teach, out of the mouth comes what's in the heart. So we can know the very heart of God from his word and grasp that, apprehend that. That is what he is saying belongs to us and our children forever. But then there's still the question of these secret things. Well, then another text for this that's very helpful is Proverbs 25, 2, that says that it is the glory of the Lord to conceal a matter and the glory of, wait for it, kings rulers to seek them out. Now, there's two mm. parts to that. Uh, obviously, our temptation as is, is evangelists is to spiritualize things, which can have its merit. So we go, well, right, because uh, you know we are made kings and priests to God through Christ. So we all need to seek uh, ruler wisdom, kingly wisdom. And that's true. Yes and amen. Hallelujah. Let's do that. But we would also be remiss to then not use the metaphor, what it is pointing at, which is actually rulers, actually kings, it is, it is their glory to seek out the secret things of the Lord. We know this, too, because it's reflected in the very law of God. In Deuteronomy 17, kings were instructed, kings of Israel were instructed to make copies of the law, written copies of the law, so that they would know it and seek out the secret things of God. So all that being said, we do have a tension here by which there are clearly secret, incomprehensible things that belong to the Lord and always will but those things revealed, especially revealed in his word, specifically revealed in his word, they're gonna touch every area of life that he desires for us to touch. And if you can see it, if you can taste it, if you can smell it, he wants you to know something about it from his word. Just like you mentioned Cornelius Van Til earlier, has a famous quote where he says that the Bible is authoritative for everything of which it speaks, and it speaks about everything. so that is the nature of God's will, his, uh, his decree and command with regard to the secret things and the things revealed. But how we go and investigate those things in light of the state, because that's really where we're going in this conversation. It's very, very important that the believer understands the way that the Bible reveals such things. Because we just, we, just, you know, we just established that it does reveal these sort of things. It does so in two ways, descriptively and prescriptively. In other words, the prescription will be kings will do X, Y, and Z. Prescriptions, right? Descriptions are what we can take from a text and see when a ruler has acted the way that he has. Did God reward that or did he punish that? That is the description. That is the descriptive way by which God reveals to us
0: righteousness
1: and unrighteousness. Um, And and I'm sure we're going to unpack that further, but I'll I'll hold there um, Mm. because I'm sure there's things you'd like to say on that response.
0: No, yeah, that's, that's good. And and it's to say that understanding, you know, it's his will of decree for me, which is ultimately, you know, his, his sovereignty that is uh, establishing everything, things that we don't even understand, like, that's the part of his will that gives me hope, you know, that no matter what, what is happening in my life or around me, I know that God is in control. Whether he's punishing us or rewarding us, you know, what what's Calvin uh Calvin say? It's a quote is attributed to him that um wicked rulers are God's judgment on a people, you it's know. True. Um yeah. but trusting God you you are you are in control and um and that is my hope that all of this has meaning. But then his will of command is what um really really gives a lot of beauty to our everyday life because it's that interrelational God giving up, uh, you know, his propositional command to us, his people saying, live this way, walk this way. And it, it, it gives that, uh, that particular nature of life, the, div- the diversity of life in this story that God is sovereignly leading, um, it's beauty, you know, and we, we relate that to what you're saying here, you know, understanding God is ultimately sovereign. He is ultimately King, but he brings up rulers and, and, and casts them down and like you said, he—he he he, we are able to see, he's, he's able to reveal to us through his command what a righteous ruler is and what a wicked ruler is so that we can have discernment. We can discern these things properly.
1: Right. There's no ambiguity with the things which directly pertain to us, right? So it would be, it would be unusual, if not cruel, if, for example, on this exact topic, if, if imagine if the Bible contained absolutely nothing to say about the nature of governments. Well, then mm-hmm. tyranny would be as frequent as the wind blowing or, or rain falling from the sky. But praise be to God, he has a ton to say on this issue. That is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's actually what is, what is best for our safety Best for our enjoyment as well, and and that's just a different view of obedience in general that evangelicals need to change. This is not simply the will of God is not simply what He wants you to do or doesn't want you to do. It is actually for again your health and safety and enjoyment that it is actually far better for you, more joyful for you when we just obey what God has to say on an issue.
0: Amen. And, and ultimately, it is um, you know everything is to the glory of God, and and our, our and when we're able to. Obey him, enjoy that safety, um, and be more joyful, it brings more glory to God. So kind of connecting all those things. So as as we dive into the state, uh, simple question, you know, and it's tough because we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get more descriptive, but just right off the bat, does God have something to say about the nature of the state and what it should be? Or is there truly, as some Christians would even argue, this M- ambiguity this uh this divide uh between god's word and what it pertains to and and the institutions of this world like the state does, does he have something about you know to say about what government should be like
1: could you imagine if I said no and then we just ended the episode right here? You know?
0: <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, ah, Cole, you're not helping me out.
1: Right, right, exactly. Because <laughs> again, like we know that this is the the whole frame of the conversation. So overwhelmingly, if we could if we could yell it from the rooftops, yes. Um, And this is directly linked, because you might say, too, that this is a very high and academic discussion that doesn't really involve the common layman, the common person. But my brother in Christ, when you say, particularly every year at Christmas, that Christ is Lord, our King has come, that is a political statement. You have no idea Mm -hmm. what you are really saying. You are saying that Christ is not uh, in error when he declared all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and where did he go he didn't go to get a bite to eat after that he went to the right hand of the father on david's throne the throne of david the right hand of god over everything so um as we unpack this there's a couple of things that again i wanted to view through the lens of uh descriptive and prescriptive as as we just covered and so, descriptively, there are a plethora of passages. I mean, it's just, we're not going to be able to go through all of them in this episode, but just namely things that right off the bat deal with what does the state have to do with the Christian faith and or in light of Christ. Uh, Psalm 2 is a great passage, inasmuch as much as it, it prophesies um, who Christ is, who, how he, he is going to reign as the Messiah, uh, the Father turns to him and says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance later on in the passage it says be warned uh, you kings and judges you rulers of the earth kiss the son the son of god christ jesus lest he be angry and you perish in the way in other words if you do not respect the will and honor of christ you will perish that is not a threat it's a promise right so right off the bat um you have passages like that additionally and one of the things that that uh, nudge me eventually into my eschatological view, was the most frequently cited passage in the New Testament from the Old is not Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You would think it is. It's not something from the prophets. It's not something from the law elsewhere. It is Psalm one ten one, that the Father said to the Son, uh, that Yahweh said to Adonai, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until until i put all of your enemies beneath your feet right there's nothing more kingly there's nothing more based than that. that that is the declarative mm-hmm. statement of you have made it as a ruler of all rulers king of kings lord of lords when you have reached that estate so i'll start there to to on the descriptive route but eventually i'd like to come to the prescriptive but it, it looks like you have something you want to say
0: yeah just i mean you connect you know people say psalm 110 is you know god's favorite bible verse but uh i mean the new testament authors christ himself quoting it to declare his his kingly reign you know the you know the father and son kind of entering this messianic you know covenant relationship there this promise to the son that you know the nations will be your inheritance you connect that with first corinthians 15. And obviously for for both of us being kind of post-mill brothers, we're using all these post-mill verses. But he shall rule and reign until he makes places all his enemies under his feet, directly related to Psalm 110. And it's obviously like you started off, it seems like a silly question. But there are so many people who claim the label of Christian that would uh, answer that question differently. That would honestly, and I think a lot of it's biblical literacy or allowing ultimately... Christ is not Lord in their life because this postmodern paradigm, and this is where the idea of worldviews come into play, um, ultimately has sovereignty over their over their life, and and whoever they believe Jesus is is almost just like a novelty, a secondary thing, and so they have, you know, they're fine going to a a liberal church. And there's things said about Jesus, and then, you know, they vote for rabid abortionists and, and defend right. them. And it's like these, right. <laughs> it, it, these things are, um, you cannot reconcile these things. So yeah. this is why these conversations are important. And, Absolutely. you know, just to, to frame this whole conversation, what really even started my idea of doing a podcast was when 2020 happened and you had the government interceding. In the in the citizen's life in a way that was um, unprecedented in a lot of ways in our in our understanding in our generation and then you just had millions of christians they'd cite romans 13 and just say submit and i was like is this your true understanding of i mean the bible is literally in large part a narrative of god's people resisting earthly authorities Absolutely. if you think about it yeah. so Uh, But this is why these simple questions need to be asked, as silly as it may be from brother to brother, uh, but this is what we're trying to relate so people can fully articulate this idea all the way back to their presuppositions, you know, the presuppositions of their beliefs.
1: Yeah, if you don't mind, that's why I wanted to hop in because... You asked the question, well, wait, what, like you said, this is kind of a silly question. Why would anyone think otherwise? I, I'd at least personally, am convinced of, of two reasons, really. Of, of One, and we kind of, again, we've nudged at it, so let's just get it out in the open. But if we don't have harmony on the destination, on what the destination mm-hmm. is that we're heading to, then the route that, on how we get there is going to be so radically different. Right, And so because so many Christians in the last several decades have adopted a view that we are supposed to lose, that we are supposed to suffer, that we are supposed to uh, be thrust out in all things, um, and, and thus Jesus will return immediately upon seeing such, then we have most certainly allowed the state to do whatever it would like to do uh, without without any question or batting of an eye. Um, but the second thing, and this, this bleeds into that, because let's say, again, I, I mean, as much as I would love it, not everyone has to be a mill. But the second thing is, we just don't know our own, again, it's like our own family history, but well, we don't know our own history. We don't know, um, like you just said, it's almost the meta narrative of the New Testament of resistance to civil authorities. But the fact, uh, no, I don't care if you're a Baptist, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Lutheran, an Anglican. All of us collectively in our Protestant heritage have a plethora of spiritual forefathers that wrote at great length um, a, about these issues. And not only did it did that, but put it into practice. Many, many Americans would be very, very um, beside themselves if they knew that at the time the Constitution was ratified, nine of the 12, uh, none of the 13, excuse me, states had official state churches. And 12 of the 13 demanded that public officials were Christians. The only one that didn't was Rhode Island. So not only have we talked about these things, we have done them because Christ is Lord. The question is that we, the question we should we should be asking is why did we stop? <laughs> mm-hmm. why, why did the sun set, it seems, on Christendom 1.0? And part of it, without a doubt, uh, is we lost our view of what is the state and what is its role before God.
0: Mm. Uh, And that's perfect to segue into this. But I did, you know, you brought up Christmas, you know, and it's just like my brothers and sisters in Christ, think about the verses we're using at Christmas time, what we're celebrating. And the biggest one is, you know, Isaiah, you know, speaking about the child of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this you know exegize that verse and think and you know, think about what it's saying you know you know if you really that is what i'm looking for or, you know the ex, Exerge- you know either
1: one hey, it's, yeah it's, exegesis it's, yeah of that verse it, it, off,
0: it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i went i went to public school okay <laughs> lord lord have mercy <laughs> but uh but think about what you're reading there is is that just lip service is that or, or is does god really saying something there clearly god's right. really saying something right. but what you said you know bleeds into what we're saying here uh you know and i'll ask you the question and and you can proceed with how you want to let's let's start it off what is the god-ordained role of the state of government
1: right so before i do that I, the last thing i wanted to say um, and, and you're absolutely right of bringing christmas into the conversation and, mm-hmm. and and we have just we've grown up in a heritage where we separate our words and our actions um unfortunately but again and, and that's just not a novel prophecy that just came from the imaginations of isaiah even when gabriel is telling mary who this son is that she is going to have he tells her he is going to rule on the throne of david over his people forever um so it's all there the question is what do we do about it and that certainly affects the question you just asked of Mm -hmm. what is the god ordained role of government well i will say this before you even answer such a question immediately there are a thousand criticisms of well, we, the last thing we can do is turn to Scripture on this because that was all the Old Testament. That was all just for the old. I was
0: going to bring that up earlier. Yeah, we right, yeah right. talking about how today we have this this discontinuity in how we view the entirety of Scripture right. and like like the meta narrative we separate old from new. When it's like you know God is not schizophrenic. You know right, this is right. you know you, so, you know connecting the, the Psalms way. to now and the prophecies of Christ. But yeah, proceed. Yeah,
1: I'm so glad you said it because people don't realize it sounds nice to say that God, quote unquote, changed his mind about some, you know, tall order. He was asking, you don't understand if you have a God that changes his mind, you have a God that cannot be trusted. And you have, you, in fact, you have a God that cannot be God because he is not constant. So we always have to ask what are the implications of my thought uh, or my idea? Because ideas have consequences. Just, just take a look around. Uh, mm-hmm. But as for uh, what is the God ordained role of government? this will come into actually more of that prescriptive element of which I was speaking. Because again, to uh, just to silence the Old Testament objection, let us not forget that it is the same Old Testament that includes the righteous use of pagan kings. We see uh, clearly a redemptive uh, role, if not complete repentance from somebody like Nebuchadnezzar, who confesses that Yahweh, the God of, 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 of Israel, is the one and true God who he has learned is not to be messed with. We then see the incredible use, the no kidding prophetic, and, uh, and, and it's a shadow of the messianic use of Cyrus, um, mm-hmm. of which uh, is so profound in Isaiah's prophecies that secular s- scholars today, they insist that Isaiah could not have written uh, his own book because he was too on the nose. He, he cited Cyrus by name a hundred years before he would have been born. And he says that the Lord is going to use you, though you do not know Him, to set His people free. Not only does it happen, but I would love to bring this into it, because you're, you're going to see immediately how this all connects. Second Chronicles records uh, a remarkable passage that, that when we view it through the context of "This is coming from the mouth of a pagan king," it, it really shakes our view of what is the role of government. So Second Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 22. Says this: Now then, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be f- fulfilled, and also Isaiah, of course, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you and all of his people. May Yahweh, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Brothers and sisters, mm. that is a pagan king who just used, according to the scriptures, which we have to believe, it's on the page, folks, just used the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms. Therefore, go. Mm-hmm. Sound familiar? This is the kingly. This is the, govern, the... You can use the governmental language all you want. This is the precedent by which later... Christ uses the same language to say, the Father has given me all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is this is the parallel passage. There's not a single thing that Christ did in his life and ministry that did not have a precedent in the Old Testament. And here it is in the Old Testament from a pagan king. It's mm. worth noting that... Uh, uh, in the arrangement, in the chronology, it's not in our our English Bibles, but in the chronology of the Hebrew Bible, 2 Chronicles is actually the last book. Just like, again, the last thing that Christ tells his apostles is the Great Commission. So the precedent for this tells us a few things. The role of government is to order people to the natural good that is exclusively found in the God of heaven, the triune God. And within that, specifically, the rest of the New Testament, as well as a ton of precedent in the and the old, tells us that it is the ministry of justice. It is the ministry of justice. That said, there's really not, there's really not a whole lot else. Now, why that might be, we can get uh, we can get into in a second. But the primary role of a God ordained government is the ministry of justice and to order people. To the natural good and the 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 heavenly good that is only found in the Triune God.
0: Mm. Beautiful. I loved how you framed that. <clears throat> ultimately, with within the the right context, and I think, yeah, the administration of justice. Um, it's uh, Doctor Martin, who I've quoted extensively. His books back here, but uh, you know, he says, um, "Government is the gift of God for the orderly procedure of man in a fallen world." Right. I, I kind of like that definition, right. and then in the context of justice, you look at what Paul. I have Paul here in Romans thirteen, because that's the most quoted. But even Peter in his first epistle talks about government. But ultimately, the execution of of justice for the state and its role a lot is is the punish punishment of evil. The punishment right. of evil, which it's interesting, and we'll talk about how worldview is so important. We'll get into this, but it's like, how does the state determine what is evil? Right. Exactly. (laughs) And that's such a
1: dangerous question. And again, folks love to forfeit what scripture has to say because that would be too too demanding on people. But ladies and gentlemen, as it's been said by other pastors before, if you remove God from above the state, then the state becomes God. And then the state becomes the legislator, the mediator, by which what is right and wrong is not only decided but willfully imposed.
0: And actually, Mm
1: -hmm. you know, earlier we were talking about soteriology. Um, one of the things that hangs people up when they're young in their faith is understanding, well, wait, if God just wanted to save the whole world, couldn't he just make everyone saved, right? Well, part of what informs such a thought in our own minds is because we have lived under a government, which if it wants to accomplish something, it imposes, it coerces uh, its its citizens to do something. But ladies and gentlemen, that is not the biblical view of power. In fact, what Christ through through his servant life is that rulership, kingship is acquired through service, the Son of Man came not to serve, but to or not not uh, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom uh, for many. And that's actually how kingship is bestowed. It's the taking of responsibility and burden, not the seizure of power at the expense of others. But unfortunately, we believe there is a version of freedom that many of us have never ever actually lived under because of where America has turned in the last several decades. But that's a whole other can of worms.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think. Ultimately, what has occurred is that in our, you know, it was shortly after the Reformation, unfortunately, you know, you're talking a few hundred years. You had enlightenment rationalism, which spawned humanism, which ultimately made man autonomous right. and ultimately made man sovereign in, in the state. You know, the state, if you look at it, is that is that, you know, the Lord talks about his strong right hand, which is his own. The state is the strong right hand of man. And if man right. is autonomous and man determines what is good and right the state is ultimately god because that is the highest order of man imposing his his sovereign will if you will absolutely and but i you know in frame you know framing it perfectly in light of god's sovereignty in light of you know god's ordained role of government <clears throat> if god is sovereign the ultimate sovereign does that mean the state is limited and if it is limited what are its limits?
1: Right. I think what, what ends up happening in our exegesis often, uh, unfortunately, is we end up making a text say the complete opposite of what it's saying. So again, during COVID, not only was did that happen in Romans 13, but you hear it all the time. Well, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. We'll finish the verse and render unto the Lord what is the Lord's. Amen, name. brother. In Psalm 24, 1, the earth and the fullness thereof belongs to the Lord. But as I was just saying, we've lived in a reality where the earth is the is the federal government's in the fullness thereof. There, in most most states in America, you can't even collect your own rainwater without being taxed or feed. Right? What is that saying about the state? The state is laying claim on what is what is given to all people from the heavens. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you start actually breaking down what what the Bible has to say about government liberty and then what the state has performed you quite you, you, it's very easy to, to see that this is not normal what we're living in is not normal um so so without a doubt uh the state is is limited because uh God is sovereign that means caesar is not but b- before i reinvented the wheel on all this and we look at passages like Romans 13 or 1st Peter um i wanted to quote RJ Rushdoony because if you're not reading Rushdoony in 2023 then please, please read him or go touch grass or something, because you need to be reading, <laughs> Rushdie, right? And so, in and I in a, thought it was pretty fitting. In an article he wrote uh, back in the 60s titled Sovereignty, he was dealing with what are the implications, say, of the second commandment in the law, that thou shalt uh, not bow down to any graven images, right? Well, then he, the rest of the law unpacks how what this is really referring to is you're not supposed to be bowing down or serving false gods and so what does that look like in the modern vernacular he says this there are all too many today whose idol is caesar who who have no images or symbols or signs in their plain churches to have no other gods beside me beside the beside yahweh god means that no other lord has sovereignty over us in any way and every area of life it means that our total way of life is governed exclusively by god the lord to limit the scope of the law So what goes on in a church building is to deny the sovereignty or lordship of the living God. The Lord God and his law word must govern, control, dominate, inform, and regulate every atom of our being and every sphere of life uh, and the world. He goes on to say uh, that you can really render the second commandment. You shall not take up the Lord, or excuse me, the third commandment. You shall not take up the Lord your God for unreality. To take God's name for a valueless purpose is to treat God as an unreality rather than as Lord and creator. To limit God's sovereignty and law to the church and to the inner life or private life of the Christian is to to deny his lordship and to treat him as an unreality. When Mm. we treat God as an unreality, we will prostrate ourselves before false gods, including and especially the state, and we will serve them. Man is a religious creature. If he rejects the living God, he will serve other gods. And this God will not tolerate.
0: We could just end it right there. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, but man. But, but like you said, it's common sense, folks. Like when, yeah. when you, we, part of it is we don't have a proper definition of worship. Worship is not just when we get around and sing a lot of happy songs that make us feel good. Worship is what we orient our very lives around and what we subject our lives to. Amen. So when I am in constant subjugation to the wills and whims of sinful men who are perpetuating perverseness, I and going along with it, am serving them and and their agenda.
0: Yeah, I, <clears throat> you know, one of my episodes that define worship, and ultimately, I say it's the it's the expression inward and outward of our of what we uh, value most. What is our highest value? worship is pertaining to that highest value and like you said if, if we're ordering our life in subjugation to sinful and wicked men are we truly worshiping god and i think in light of the state you know and looking at what should be its limits and and the fact that it should be limited i mean obviously god is sovereign not the state as you said and understanding that in light of scripture man is fallen man is sinful Man is not perfect. Therefore, man cannot be the ultimate sovereign or else we, we run the risk of, of what we're dealing with today. Right. So understanding these biblical principles and if they lead, if they are our foundational lens through which we see the world and, and how we should order society, we start to see clearly, yeah, the state should have some limiting roles.
1: Right, and, and and as we zero in on this because uh, we'll read again the, the controversial passage, Romans 13 here in a second um, when we understand that the role of government is limited we then ask the natural question, limited to what? And we already said justice, we're about to see in the text how uh, the, the state is the um, minister of the sword, the sword of justice we're going to unpack what that means but what it also does not mean, and again we don't have to reinvent the wheel on this, just look at our own Christian heritage it means that the government is not the minister of education. It means that the government is not the minister of healthcare. It means that the government is not the minister of X, Y, and Z that not only we taken for granted, but we look over at the West where a lot of our beautiful Protestantism came from, and they've got you know state-funded media and all kinds of other crazy things we're looking around like, where did we get all these ideas? Because that's not what, not only is that not what scripture says is the role of the state, but even our own constitution, please, anyone, anyone listen to this, go find me the article or amendment in the U S constitution that says that the government will be responsible for education. You won't find it. Um, but that's, you know, we can go down some rabbit holes there, mm-hmm. but, but the point is, is, uh, as you know, as you even said, you're going to, you're going to talk about these other spheres throughout these, these episodes. Um, I could, what, what needs to be established right off the bat is that while there is overlap between them, uh, they are limited to their primary function, and that would be for the state justice. Because it is not just that the government would, you know, you know, by force distributed um, by by force would ensure distributed wealth to care for a number of projects that the Bible nor our own doc, governing documents say that it has to do. Um, and that's really helpful when we, you know, keep diving into the conversation.
0: Yeah, I think it's un- under or it's important to understand um framing the context of our conversation here that we're talking about this is one sphere of many. Um you know, the idea of sphere sovereignty everyone um attributes it to Kuyperianism, you know, Abraham Kuyper. Uh but it's I think it was well before that. You know, obviously it's ultimately it's biblical. Uh God clearly outlines like, hey, there's there's primary responsibilities for the family in in aspects of life it is their primary responsibility for example educating the children you know god's direct command is you know fathers and mothers right and then you have the institution of the church and then you have the state and then you can get into kind of i would call them subcategories that go from there like the arts and media and things like that but understanding that the state is is relational as you said to other spheres like the family and the church. And the question is each one has its limits, each one has its primary roles, and how do they all coincide? And we should be answering that question, uh, framing it from our biblical understanding, ultimately, as Christians. And we should be right. striving for that biblical model in whatever nation we live in.
1: Right, right. So, with that, um, you know, there's going to be some implicatory questions that arise out of reading this text. But I figured right off the bat, we would just read Romans uh, 13, one through four, mm-hmm. because there before, I mean, yes, we're going to go into more nuanced ideas, but, but I also would love to apply just a common sense application right after we read this. But it says this, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Now, there's a lot of different things to break down in there, including the fact that the Lord delegates authorities uh, through other or, or even powers through other means, right? So, I mean, it, and this is very, very simple in the everyday life of a Christian. The Lord, through certain means, blesses us. He blesses us through the means of the preached word. He blesses us through the means of receiving us in baptism. Um, and he blesses us through means of good and righteous rulers, but as you pointed out, what Calvin was pointing out when he said that the Lord will sometimes raise up wicked rulers to chastise the people is in Isaiah chapter three, it's very clear that the unrepentant people would not listen to the priests and prophets. And so the Lord, it says he brings up children to rule them immaturely, brutishly, um, rashly. Those are the things which God appoints at various times. But as for you know common sense application, what do you do when the government puts a gun to your head and says, hey, throw your baby off a cliff? I don't care who from, you know, the TGC we name or any other society. (laughs) group. no one is going to at least want to do that. The question is, is does any government have the right to do it? Mm -hmm. I would hope we would all say no. And if we say no, then we have a lot to ask for because the government that we all live under is giving millions a year to Planned parenthood. So they are throwing those babies off a cliff, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's where we need to ask. Does the government have the biblical right to do such a thing? And I would hope, again, we would all say, resoundingly, no. And not only is it okay for us to say no, we are supposed to hold the minister of God, the government, accountable to punishing the wicked, not the righteous or the innocent.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it's important when you read First Peter, you read Peter or Paul, what they're outlining is their righteous authority and their role you know they're not fully within within these passages he's not fully outlining the the entire conversation god has you know inspired him to write what he writes there but i think what he's inspired to write is this is the righteous authority this is what they do and when you frame it within the entire context of scripture that's important in our exegesis right you see that even the apostles resisted the authority right oh, yeah. whenever they were commanded to disobey God or not do what God has willed. They said, judge for yourself what is right before men, we will do what is right before God. They resisted the authority. Were they disobeying Paul's command there? No, when we understand the entire context.
1: Exactly, exactly. The same, the same men who say such things were both, both Peter and Paul, killed by governments, uh, mm-hmm. as well as one of the best mic drop moments in all of the book of Acts is when Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5 and they, and they say, well, we, what we loosely paraphrase to say, obey God, defy tyrants, is exactly what you said, is uh, mm-hmm. we will not go along with the traditions of men, we will obey God. Um, and and that, that statement there, again, just, just circling back to it for like the third time, is, is what informed what came to be known as Protestant resistance theory of the the sovereign, the, the local governing body, or the federal gover- governing body, does not have the right to impose upon the people what God has not imposed on the people. And this is really uh, foundational in our understanding of government, even here in America, because though he was certainly not a Christian, even a deist like Jefferson understood that without God, there are no rights. You see, the government does not give us rights The government protects rights. That's what they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to give you rights because if they give you rights, those are merely privileges that they can revoke at any time. They are called to protect justly, wielding the sword of justice. They're supposed to protect your rights given from whom? Given from God. And it's very, very clear those rights which God has gave. And notice how every time in which um, we see this in the New Testament as well as today, Uh, Jesus' constant rebuke to the Pharisees was that now they have put a burden on the backs of the people that is so large it's crushing them with their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws. Because they were relying on the authority of men rather than the authority of God. Mm. In our day there's not a state or a county in this country where you don't have regulations, stipulations, ordinances, laws so many you don't even know. You can get pulled over and charged or arrested for something that you didn't know was a law because that mm-hmm. is what happens and when law is in the hands of men, we actually find to see we actually come to find that the law of God is far more freeing.
0: Yeah, I think when man tries to be sovereign, they try to become God in essence and man is clearly unable to so they oh, try yeah. to execute all these laws where obviously God is able to sovereignly rule this existence. He's able to harmonize what we talked about, that he wills whatsoever comes to pass, and yet humanity is responsible. He's able to do all these things. But man, in his sinfulness, and his rebellion, says, no, I can indeed become God, and I will attempt this. I will create this utopian vision, and I do so by crushing the people with a 5,000-page <laughs> you know, page Book of Regulations, right, but it's exactly. it's not based in reality because ultimately right. reality is based in the truth, based. which is revealed by God. Yeah, yeah. I will say this, closing
1: out that question on um, on the limited role of the government. So yeah, again, justice. We we want to hammer that home. It is not the job of the the state to become the parent um, and and receive your. I mean, goodness, we have such wicked laws now that in the state of Washington, if they uh, if they parents are not acknowledging the sexual transition of their um, children the state can become the legal custodian of uh, Uh, it's
0: just wickedness
1: but we ask how did we get there we get there because the state started assuming all kinds of roles that parents forfeited and in the same way Um, everyone gets so worried in this conversation of, well, we can't return to Christian rule or Christian law or biblical law, because then, well, what about blasphemy laws? Are people not going to be allowed to, you know, say what they want to say, say their beliefs? We still have blasphemy laws, particularly in my job. I can't tell my personnel that homosexuality is a sin. I would get booked up. That would be a blasphemy against the people's God, which is humanism, right? So Mm -hmm. the first table of the law has not gone away. It's just been legislated by humanists. It's not, (laughs) and so it's always in this inescapable concept. How we know that these things are supposed to be limited is because scripture. It's because scripture and our heritage as Christians, we are the exception. If we wanna talk about American exceptionalism, we are the exception as much as we have gone along with the secular experiment. And again, you don't have to be a theologian to know that it's not working out too well. So we would be uh, very blessed by going back to the limits of government that Scripture places on it.
0: Mm, amen. So some of the practical applications, because uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but looking at how then shall we live? How then shall we as Christians try to affect what, uh, what God desires? You know, First question right off the bat. Does the Great Commission call Christians to transform the nature of institutions like the state?
1: Well, anywhere that there's people, so you want to tell me that there's no government that, you know, if there's a government that functions without people, please let me know. But that's the funny thing is I hear all the time that, no, 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 the gospel is just about, you know, saving the individual. Okay, all right, so, so work with me here. The gospel saves an individual. Great. The gospel saves a group of individuals. Great. The gospel saves even more individuals, even better. So many that it's a community, great. A bunch of communities, great. A nation, congratulations, you have Christian nationalism. Congratulations, you, <laughs> have, you have a, a disciple nation. Everyone goes, no, 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 no. But, yeah. but, but if individual Christians are supposed to submit to Christ in their repentance and forgiveness, and they do, and then a bunch do, are we not going to have a discipled nation? The reason why we don't, uh, is is one many Christians don't even hold that view, uh, but two we again we have forfeited that the gospel is the leaven in the loaf that that consumes the whole thing. It's the the mustard seed that grows to the largest tree in the garden, that again God is not going to leave any stone unturned, and again He has insisted upon as much in His Word. Now we already made the parallel between the Great Commission and Cyrus's Commission at the end oh. of Second Chronicles, but we would be remiss to not acknowledge the fact that while God had a particular relationship with Israel in the Old Testament, what I like to call the, the the table of nations in Isaiah is you have 10 plus chapters and smack dab in the middle of Isaiah, where he's not just talking about the judgment that's gonna come upon Israel. It is Moab, it's Babylon, it's Assyria, it's uh, Tyre and Sidon. He, he, wh- if God didn't care about how other nations other than his people um, govern themselves, then why would he specifically cite their sins what they didn't do in obedience to him, and why he is going to judge them. We do not Mm -hmm. serve an unjust God who again, punishes the righteous and rewards the wicked. He punishes the wicked. So so this is all to say that institutions are to most certainly be saturated with the gospel. And why would we not desire that? Do we not want to see that the knowledge of the Lord becomes just as uh, flourishing as the waters that cover the sea as so many times is prophesied in the Old Testament? That anywhere where there is people, we want to see their lives transformed by the gospel. And if their lives are transformed by the gospel, why would the institutions they're a part of not also transform? And when they transform, by what standard are they going to govern, participate, and have a role in society?
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think people start, Christians start talking about institutions and they're saying, well, you're not getting at the core of the gospel. And it's like, I understand that that is the... That is the ditch on the other side of the road, right? We do need to understand that how does God work? It is the Holy Spirit executing the salvation that Christ provided in history by regenerating individual hearts. I'm tracking. But what is the logical conclusion and the practical application of that if we have faith that Christ is indeed successful in his saving work? Like you said, what is the Great Commission? Disciple the peoples of all nations, Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age, right? Okay. So, yes, the gospel is preached. Individuals are saved. But there's it's more than one individual, right? They, they become communities. They become peoples. They become tribes. Ultimately become states. And then the question is asked, how do we obey Jesus in every aspect of our lives and that includes how do we govern our institutions and, it, and when you this is my big thing with just understanding worldview is how can we as Christians seek to uphold a state that is not based in the morality that is established by God it's like you said Christ like the, what is good and what is bad was not specific to only God's people the, you know the 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 law is a, is a, God commands every man, woman, and child to obey the law, and that should ultimately be the basis for how we determine right and wrong. But in our, it's because ultimately the postmodern paradigm has is the governing worldview of today, where we can just everyone has their own sense of right and wrong, which is utter chaos, and that's the chaos we're seeing. So I just. I, I think uh, you're on, you're on, uh, you're on the ball there. So moving on. So and this is where, man, we can't. We're, we're going to be here for three hours. I don't want to take up your whole your whole Saturday, <laughs> but because obviously Christians have different views. Like you know, you have a lot of Christians that will agree, yes, God's law, but they all have different ideas as far as how far that's executed. There's the the first and second tables of the Decalogue of the law and and what should the state govern. And you have uh, these different ideas. But, you know, the question I would ask is, you know, what should the basis for the civil law be? And I think what we've clearly established is God's law. And when we mean civil law, the law that the state's ultimately writing and executing, right? Right. But... (laughs) I say short synopsis. This, this it's going to be hard for you, brother. Let's see if you can do it. But can you give a short synopsis of what people mean by the first and second tables of the Decalogue, and the different Christian arguments for the civil magistrate enforcing one or both tables? So, in in essence, what I think me and you subscribe to, which is like general equity theonomy, and then you have um, two classical two kingdom. God forbid anyone is a radical 2K guy, but uh, we know it's out there. But uh, just short yeah. synopsis on on these different viewpoints on where where does the state enforce justice?
1: Right. So I promise I'll try to make this as succinct as possible, and I'll just give the typical Sunday school answer, Jesus. So, so mm-hmm. we take for granted what seems to be a common sense verse, but what was truly... Uh, rich theology is an exquisite answer. But remember when Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, uh, one of them in particular, he says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. We don't hmm. understand. He is summarizing the first five of the 10 commandments, the first table of the Decalogue, the first five words, and the second, uh, table, so commands one through four are all about our relation unto the triune God, if five through 10 are all about our relation to our fellow man, right? So closing with, um, keep the Sabbath and then opening with honor, thy father and thy mother. Now this is also really notable because keep in mind that of the, 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 the laws, which pertain to how we love our neighbor, they start with honor, thy father and thy mother. Why? Well, because it ontologically points to the first table because who are we honoring with this one? Our father, honor your father. Um, mm. Anyway, the point in, in saying all of that uh, 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 with respect to the first and, and second tables is what is what has happened in the Christian dialogue regarding this topic for the last 500 years is there has been debate. There has been debate of do we just enforce the second and basically allow men the liberty of conscience in a civil society to, to worship whatever God of their choosing? which would be more of an enlightenment rationalism, this idea that it'll all work out, don't worry, as long as we just love our neighbor the right way, you know, his thoughts about his God won't affect us. Well, we've seen how that's played out. But, of course, we've also had versions even in American history. Look no further. I would recommend anyone uh, just giving a Google search to the Massachusetts Body of Liberties. It was the the first charter of the Massachusetts Bay Colony by which, in their civil code, they specifically cited Deuteronomy. They specifically (laughs) cited the law. And, and so it is possible to, even in America, for us to uh, demand obedience to the first table of the law. Um, and if you have a problem with that, well, then you have a problem with the foundation that our nation was, was built upon. And even in the dialogues of the fathers, there have been many historians who have done great works to demonstrate that as many times as the, the founders quoted Locke and, um, and Blackstone and, these other, and, and, Tom, and uh, Thomas Paine, it pales in comparison as to how many times they were quoting Moses. So again, if you have a problem with these ideas, you have a problem upon the founding of America, which leads me to when the Christian becomes enamored with this study, because it is very, very fun fun to study, and they're trying to select which of these positions am I going to hold? Am I got to hold that all of the law of God has some application to today? Now, we might debate about what that application looks like, but we would at least say that all of it applies. Maybe they're looking into that position. Maybe they're looking into the position that... No, 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 no. Keep the church and all of society entirely separate, that R2K that you were speaking of. Or maybe it's something in between. All I'm saying is, at the very least, I don't think it's a tall order to ask America alone to just be consistent with what we were founded upon. Mm -hmm. That would still be far better than what we have now. Now, we should push for an even greater understanding and application of what the law of God or what the word of God has to say that will require extra study that will require extra conversation and ambition and intensity and focus but again it will still be i think we can all agree it would still be far better off than what we have now to the christians and, and a couple come to mind the uh, you know the francis collins of the world um or uh, or what's the guy's name i think it might just been francis collins but there oh um the guy that writes for christianity Today, russell moore the uh or the david french's of the world who say well all that we're seeing now is just the price that we have to pay to live in a free society um no freedom does not look like the government funded slaughter of children it does not look like the government endorsement of perversity it does not look like the government uh, um, um the government support to take your daughters from you in a military draft to send them over to for- foreign foreign mm-hmm. scenes. That's not what freedom looks like. (laughs) And if we say, the minute that we say that the Bible has something to say about any of these things, then we have now stepped into an assumption, a presupposition, that the Bible has a role in how we govern ourselves.
0: Amen. Yeah, I think... You know, politics, the state, it it flows downstream from ultimately where is the culture of the people, which is going to be, you know, the culture is ultimately, you know, fleshed out at its foundation here on earth from a, from a familial and, you know, uh, church level. And it kind of determines like, what is the makeup of our state? And like we said, what, what is the foundational morality that establishes your, your civil code? And if we say that we can find some other standard other than God, especially as God's people, I mean, we're lying to ourselves. We're right. you know. Now I think you know, like you said, there's a, there's a lot of minutiae, and we don't have the time for it. of Of how far do we do we take that? And it's important to realize that the liberty we enjoy today is really because of Christianity. It's because of, yeah. of Protestant resistance and even the, the foundations before that and understanding what is the role of the state. It is not sovereign and, and, and our and we're not, we're not fulfilling the fifth commandment of honoring our fathers and mothers, you know, but understanding yeah. what they've, what they've established to the ages and understanding, you know, and it's, it's Christian doctrines like common grace that God, you know, his son shines on the righteous and unrighteous. You see in the Bible, how even in the old Testament, they took care of the alien. Um, these are biblical principles and it's the biblical principle that dictates yes god does not advance his his gospel at the edge of the sword you know repent or die but it indeed it is the sovereign god changing the hearts of men but ultimately we are we are to the sword has its place and that is the state and i think you know the, the questions ultimately asked and this is where the minutiae gets into but it's it's something for maybe the listeners to consider we can touch on it because the idea is you know, God's law is what determines what is sinful and not. And we, I think, we would all agree that for the state to determine something criminal, uh, that crime should be a sin, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't criminalize good things. <laughs> we should criminalize sinful behavior. Right. Right. But I think we would all agree in some aspects that not all sins should be crimes, or else we'd all be thrown in jail. Right. And I, th- I think that's the distinguishing line: is is what do we determine? What is criminal behavior? And for me personally, I don't know if it's because of my American heritage, I think it, it comes from a biblical perspective, but it's the idea of we have rights, you know, Absolutely. life, life, liberty, property. And, you know, like our, our constitution guards our rights against a tyrannical government and what the state should be doing whenever the legislative body seeks to establish a, a, something that is criminal. The questions they should be asking is what. Uh, what right is a citizen denying another citizen, right? So murder is a crime because a, a citizen is denying a citizen the right to life. Theft is a crime because they're denying a citizen, a citizen the right to property. That's kind of where I'm at. But it's interesting, like all these different conversations of general equity, theonomy, uh, classical two kingdom, like where where do we establish that line of what sins do we criminalize?
1: Right. I think that any what's funny is a lot of a lot of folks will then run off and make speculations about, well, yeah, what would that look like? And they say things that are just just entirely foreign to the scriptures um, Mm -hmm. because because really it is we are offended. We are offended by what the scriptures have to say. So, for example, and this is, you know, we might go off the deep end here for a second, but I I was no kidding, this is providential. I was having a discussion with a buddy about this today, and we were both in agreement that, like, say, for example, again, okay, so what you laid out is a great summary of there is a distinction between crimes and sins, in as much as it's just like how um, all, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares, right? So, all Crimes are sins, but not all sins are crimes. Inasmuch as, for example, Jesus tells us specifically that it is a sin to even have lust in your heart, that in your heart you have committed adultery. But as you pointed out, that would leave every male on the planet dead. Um, mm-hmm. So, but uh, what would be a crime out of that same sin? Well, praise be to God, He has given us a clear, non ambiguous text that tells us that when you commit adultery, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now that is a crime. Now that is is both a sin and a crime, and it is something that needs to be punished. So it's a very, very simple one, you know, like uh, the shoe fits. The shoe does indeed fit. And what we cannot do is is in, in seeking to establish biblical justice, we would be fooling ourselves and blaspheming the very word of God if we take exactly what he reveals and we say, no, maybe not that, because then we are epistemologically saying that we have a better idea of what God calls justice, and we're calling him unjust to do so. So the passage that my buddy and I were talking about is what's been kicked around in the Christian nationalism conversation or the theonomy conversation is, well, how, you know, how theonomic will we be? Would it be just like this? Because what do we do with Leviticus 20.13, that if a man lays with another man, he is to be stoned. Now, here's the thing. Part of it is, again, our, our postmodern lens of w- what we understand the state to be, that we're, again, we're looking directly at the do's and don'ts and the immediate consequences. We disregard the fact that there are case studies given in the scriptures, none of which actually even show forth the the actual execution of this law, which is to say, and it's where we get the, the basis for English common law, is that we can always give lesser punishments to certain crimes, that's what. That's where juries came about from, uh, and the mercy of judges came about from. But what we cannot do is say that it would be unbiblical, or that it would be unjust to do something like that, because God did it. If God had instituted it for a time, then God had a purpose, and to say otherwise would, would be to say that God is unjust. So in, mm. in saying all of that, what, what needs to be said is this, is that for Christendom 2.0, when we return to laws that are honoring to scriptures. We, if we're going to embrace scriptures, we need to embrace Genesis to Revelation. We can't hide between the things that make us uncomfortable. It is us that need to be reoriented to the scriptures, not the scriptures to be reoriented around, around us. But it is a grace to know that the scriptures do make a distinction between sins and crimes.
0: Mm. Yes, sir. And I think, you know, two things. Um, one, I think it is because no matter, like, It's amazing how successful Marxism has become. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's infiltrated all of our thinking in some ways, but, uh, you know, God deliver us from it. But the idea that, yeah, like you said, we have this notion because of our view today that every right and wrong in some respects is governed, like the state ultimately decides. And it's like, no, you know, the state, if we look at it biblically, is, is limited. And what it can and can't do, and you know the second thing is, you know, yeah, getting back to a place where in our halls, in our state uh, general assemblies, when when our when our statesmen are deciding what in fact what sin should be criminalized, where are they going for that basis? Ultimately, they're they're going to what is true, because what is true is determining what is good, and what is bad, and that is God's law. And as Christians that are fulfilling the Great Commission, that is ultimately what we're striving for. We're preaching the gospel to our neighbors. We're loving our neighbors and trusting God is fulfilling that work sovereignly and Christ is placing every nation under his feet. And it's, you know, I think like you said, we have to realign our lives because even I know good Christians where they talk and we would need to define Christian nationalism, and you know we're not gonna. Man, this would just take hours to go into that. But you know they'll say, "Well, we can't have a Christian nation because then it's the Christian version of the Taliban." And it's like, how dare we even relate ourselves yeah. to, you know, to, to to pagans like that? Understanding, right. you know, that we don't have a full comprehension. Of what me mean, we think, oh, if a religion. A religion quote unquote, I'm using air quotes for those that aren't seeing the video, determine uh, determines right and wrong for a state that it's ultimately religious tyranny. but what we don't what we need to see as Christians in the view of worldview, we're religious creatures. Our religion is always governing an institution including the state. Right. The question is what is the religion? Right now it's humanism right Humanism is a religion. you know it's a systematic view of the world. Instead of a supernatural God, it's the natural God of man. That is how we as Christians need to view things so that we can understand the full mission of placing everything. God is placing everything under the feet of Christ. That includes the institutions. And he's using us here and now. This isn't something that's going to happen. Like you said, this is where eschatology matters Um, and where a direction we're going. He's doing it here and now. We're not just here to twiddle our thumbs and hope for the best and and escape this world no we are more than conquerors through christ who loves us
1: amen amen that was a good way to wrap it all up i think
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah well there i mean do you have any final thoughts brother
1: yeah i'd say this is that again when we start talking about actually doing what the bible says you know everyone starts kicking which is crazy because you know isn't that just obedience? but whatever um We don't understand what is even the function of law. And this is something that, again, Rush Dooney, I would recommend him to anybody. um, He points out over and over and over again, is that law imposes a morality and is therefore um, or excuse me, it imposes a morality and is therefore religious. So if we if we even have a law on the books that says that, you know, you shouldn't steal somebody else's bike. Congratulations. We are communicating with that law that you should not steal a bike. That is an immoral thing to do. It's an unethical thing to do. Um, And so what we need to understand is because every law is religious, we are catechized by whatever laws are over us. So, for example, the numbers show it. How many, quote-unquote, conservatives, how many, quote-unquote, Christians, since 2015, Obergefell v. Hodges, the landmark decision which legalized um, sodomized marriage, right? Um, How many since then have the numbers of supporters, quote-unquote, allies, increased? Why? Why? Well, if it's the law of the land, I guess I have to be shaped by it because we're, we are. We are we are either shaped by the law of God or the law of a false God. But in,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in no way are we not shaped, influenced, catechized by whatever laws there are. So I would really encourage folks to meditate on that, um, to, to really research it. Because what you'll come to find again is that this isn't just a conversation between two regular dudes, although it is. This is a conversation the church has been having for a very long time long time. Some, some resources that I would recommend uh, are, if you want just a primer on the, the nastiness of humanism, read Chris, The Christian Manifesto by Francis Schaefer. Wonderful read. It's a quick one. I would also recommend uh, Christian Reconstruction, What It Is and What It Is It by Gary North. Um, and then anything, literally anything, that you can get your hands on from R.J. Rushdoony. It will, it, you, <laughs> it'll uh, bless your socks off. I heard a Baptist say once. And lastly, lastly, just to sto- just to study the historicity of this, and just to you know check our math on it. There's a wonderful book titled "Slaying Leviathan" by Glenn Sunshine, where he covers the history of how the ch- for the last 2,000 years how the church has dealt with the institution of the state, how the how the church has dealt with government, um, and that will. I think um, you know it will Give weight to what we've Discussed here tonight that it's not just in a vacuum This is something we've talked about for a long time We've had a vision of for a long time The matter is are we going to Retake that vision are we going to Go to see be you know repent And become obedient again to what God has commanded About the state and his people
0: Mm, Amen Well, I've definitely written a couple of those down I got to get into Them Um, Cole what are your current Projects and where can people find you
1: yeah, so uh, you already cited one, the the primary theology and meme pages, if you will, is rex.christus on Instagram. As for the one that I'm much more excited about uh, that you cited earlier, Doctrines of Grains. You can find us on uh, Instagram and YouTube. It's wherever you get your podcast. but that's my buddy Seth and I. He's a pastor, and we talk about... Um, well, one, we do beer reviews, and then two, we talk about practical theology. We call it Doctrines of Grains. It's play on of the Doctrines of Grace uh, from the Calvinistic tradition. And so we're actually doing a systematic um, commentary through Calvin's Institutes. Um, so that, that would, that, that'd that be a project I'd love for y'all to check out. But overall of that, overall of that, that's all just me and, and my personal whims. Who cares about those? Uh, my wife and I are are a part of a really exciting uh, church plant for a CREC church here in Jacksonville, Florida, Trinity Reformed Evangelical Church. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Um, please, if you, uh, if you live in the Jacksonville area, we'd love to meet you. Uh, if you know anyone in the Jacksonville area who would be interested in becoming a part of a Reformed Evangelical Church, please, uh, send them over to our platforms or, or come talk to me We would be more than happy to uh, see them and to, and to get to meet them A, a part of this this, uh, this endeavor
0: Awesome bro That's all good work Yeah guys definitely check out uh, Doctrines of Grains You guys have a good time I love watching you um, <laughs> You guys are doing good work locally And uh, and praise be to God uh, Just remember listeners That uh, tyranny is indeed satanic And as we are called to resist Satan We are called to resist tyrants obey God resist tyrants sing your war song